In February 1945, the 10th Mountain Division, untested in combat, was thrown into what they came to call the Battle for the Boot, the campaign to defeat Hitler's legions in Italy. I'm Oliver North, and this War Stories podcast is about the longest and incredibly brutal campaign in the European theater of World War II. When the call went out for volunteers to become our nation's first ski troops, Men of America's Purple Mountain's majesty quickly stepped up to fill the ranks of the 10th Mountain Division. In so doing, they became legends in military history. They came from all walks of alpine life to converge on a secret base high in the Colorado Rockies. Many were world champion ski racers, ski jumpers, mountain climbers, mule skinners, and guides. They became the elite warriors of the 10th Mountain Division, America's fighting winter warriors. They'd face one of the toughest tasks of the Second World War, breaking Hitler's iron grip on the steep mountain faces of Italy. In this gripping podcast, you'll hear of their battles with bitter cold, blinding snow, and tough German troops desperately holding on to their last line of defense. Listen carefully as World War II veterans of this fabled unit describe their battles and how those stories have forged a legacy for today's 10th Mountain Division and those who serve in the shadows of the Hindu Kush in the rugged mountains of Afghanistan in the ongoing war on terror. And if you're not moved by Senator Bob Dole's tenacious struggle to recover from the terrible wounds he suffered during a heroic attempt to save one of his men during the 10th Mountain's bloodiest battle, you should seek immediate medical attention because your heart has stopped. By the end of this podcast, I hope you agree the 10th Mountain Division really has a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North, and this is Cooper Mountain, high in the Colorado Rockies. And it was on this very slope at almost 11,000 feet that the tough and tenacious men of the legendary 10th Mountain Division trained for battle during World War II. The 10th was America's first and only winter warfare division, and it faced one of the toughest tasks of the Second World War, to break Hitler's iron grip on the mountains of northern Italy. In this episode of War Stories, you'll hear from the men who fought those high-altitude battles Among them, Senator Bob Dole. And you'll hear of their struggles with unrelenting foes, the terrain and the weather, forcing fights on steep slopes in bitter cold. Tonight, you'll discover why all those who've ever worn the 10th Mountain Division patch are proud to be called the Mountaineers. Lawrence E. Ardle, Roy L. McBride, William P. McCarthy, Thurman P. McCarty. The men of the 10th Mountain Division remember their dead 57 years after the end of World War II. Lester J. McDermott, Alfred C. McDonald, Richard G. McGuire. Half a world away, men of the new 10th Mountain Division fight the war on terror in Afghanistan. The serene and picturesque mountains of the American West were the birthplace of the 10th, America's first and only mountain division. 
Fighting on skis dates back thousands of years. Regular ski regiments appeared in Scandinavia by the 1500s. Snow and cold was a major factor for George Washington's army at Valley Forge in 1777. And there was a major fight on skis when Russia invaded Finland in 1939. There were huge battles fought with with thousands of men on skis uh, across the wide plains and steppes of northern Europe. Flint Whitlock's dad was a member of the 10th. He's the author of a book on the division Soldiers on Skis, and he heads the Colorado Military History Museum. Combat didn't stop because the winter set in. But in America, it took a tireless civilian to convince the War Department that it would soon need its own soldiers on skis. The Germans had their Gebergsjäger, and the Italians their Alpini. There were mountain soldiers, ski soldiers, in our uh, opposition armies, you might say. His name was Charles Minot Dole. He's known as Minnie, and he's the founder of the National Ski Patrol, volunteers who rescue injured skiers. So Minnie became the spokesperson. He took it upon himself to be the persuading arm, you might say, to try to create this within the United States Army. Initially, the government had no interest in it. Dole went to the top, writing President Roosevelt and Army Chief of Staff General George Marshall. It worked. In the fall of 41, Marshall gave the order to form a regiment, about a thousand men, for an experimental mountain force. American Alpine troops training in tactics of mountain warfare. At Fort Lewis in the state of Washington, they're organizing a special regiment to operate mid the rugged heights. The activation date of this experiment was the 15th of November, just 22 days before Pearl Harbor. Earl Clark grew up in Chicago during the Depression. After graduating from high school, he hitchhiked west to Colorado's Rocky Mountains. It was a little bit of paradise. I I fell in love with the west and the mountains just instantly. He became an experienced mountain climber during summers in the Grand Tetons, and he knew the ski troops were for him. That was what I was pointed toward because of my skiing and mountaineering love. I had three letters of recommendation at that time for the 10th Mountain Division. Hugh Evans was born in San Rafael, California, and became a rock climber and skier as a youth. Spent some time in the High Sierra on six-week pack trips. I was reading uh, the Christian Science Monitor one evening, and here was a little story about the formation of the 87th Mountain Infantry Regiment. Bob Parker was the son of a teacher from an old New England family, and he fell in love with skiing as a teen. There were no chairlifts, and there were no tramways. It was all either rope toes or uh, the early T-bar type lifts. The old hickory boards with no edges and uh, uh, the toe strap type binding. And galoshes for ski boots. It didn't give you much purchase on the ski, so we pretty much ran straight until we got to the bottom of a hill and then made some kind of a turn at the bottom or fell down. That was it. And we skied down, went back up, and. It was wonderful fun then, and it still is. (laughs) Then, as the newly minted mountain troops were undergoing their first training on the slopes of Washington's Mount Rainier, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. I think we had to look it up on the map. We didn't know much about geography. I was at the University of Kansas attending every farewell party in none of my classes. (laughs) But I remembered 
is like it happened yesterday. Bob Dole would later fight valiantly on the mountains of Italy and eventually run for the highest office in the land. It had a big change on that generation, of course, and I became a member of the Enlisted Reserve in December 1942. With war declared, our forces began a massive mobilization, and General Marshall ordered a tripling in the size of the mountain regiment. They wanted mountain climbers, skiers, uh, mule skinners to handle the pack animals, blacksmiths, veterinarians, forest rangers. The 87th quickly swallowed up most of the college ski teams from the east, along with their coaches. Most of them were Europeans. Even famous Olympians joined up. One of the most famous, world champion ski jumper Torger Tokel from Norway. Champion among jumpers was Torger Tokel, who on March the 2nd recorded the longest jump of his life in a tremendous leap of 288 feet. But there were ordinary Europeans too, even Germans. Well, I got my first skis when I was six. Bob Meyerhoff was born in Munich and spent much of his youth hiking and skiing in the rugged peaks where skiing was born, the Alps. Just walking up mountains. We did a lot of that. Then Hitler's dark cloud began to spread across his native land. My father was Jewish and my mother was Catholic. And uh, my mother saw the handwriting on the wall and said, you better get out. So he uh, went to San Francisco and... Uh, then he told me, why don't you come on over, and I did. Bob was considered an enemy alien, but he fell in love with America and wanted to join the Army. His ski skills and several letters of recommendation got him in. I became a ski instructor and enjoyed it very much. With all these men of the mountains coming together in one place, camaraderie and morale ran sky high, and a tradition of song was soon born. The first cadre of officers in the 87th formed a singing group when they were on Mount Rainier. At Fort Lewis, they made up a lot of these wonderful songs. After you had a couple of beers, you started singing. They took ski songs, uh, European songs, yodel songs, and changed the words to suit our environment and the situation. Um, and... Uh, for instance, the famous bell-bottom trousers, one of the great songs of the Navy, became 90 pounds of rucksack for us. It contributed greatly to the morale and, and spirit of the group, and still does, 57 years later. But the ski troopers knew these sweet sounds of music would soon be replaced by the deadly cacophony of combat. It was their job to figure out how to wage war in the mountains. And you're not just out there to see the sights and ski down a few slopes. You're out there to make contact with the enemy and defeat the enemy, or you're going to die. The Winter Warriors test a new weapon of war. We'll take you for a ride in one of these weasels when War Stories returns. Shortly after Pearl Harbor, the War Department realized it would have to expand the small mountain training unit to a full division and would have to find a base big enough for almost 18,000 men. They wanted someplace remote, someplace mountainous, someplace that had a lot of snow. 
They picked a spot in Colorado and called it Camp Hale. They recruited a veritable army of workers with the lure of a dollar ten an hour in wages. And there were probably as many men who were working on building the camp as there were who were eventually stationed here when it was completed. Just to keep them fed, cooks dished out three tons of potatoes, 3,000 loaves of bread, 700 pounds of butter, and 20,000 eggs every single day. They were in a race against time to build an entire base before the winter snows. Really a miracle to put in a community from nothing. They chopped down 17 square miles of trees and leveled the valley with 2 million cubic yards of earth. Over a thousand buildings were created in, in the valley and so forth. From an empty valley in April of 1942 to a bustling base just seven months later. There were barracks, mess halls, chapels, a theater, mule barns, warehouses, even a combat village. And not far away, a ski slope for training, Cooper Hill. What was this hillside like when you first got here in the midst of World War II? Well, there were more, there were more trees than here then than you see here today. The trails were not as wide. Camp Hill is actually 12 miles down that draw, right? Yes. Yeah, that's the old DNRG railroad line, and that was one of the reasons they built Camp Hill, because it was on the railroad line. As the troops poured in, testing of equipment stepped up. On May 1st, 1942, G4 requested the development of a snow vehicle for a special operation. Machines already developed were investigated. The aero sled, the jeep, a half-track with front ski steering, the Archimedean screw. The solution appeared to be a track-laying vehicle with controlled differential steering. This is an M29C Weasel, made by Studebaker and tested right here by the 10th Mountain Division. It looks small, but this tough little vehicle could haul up to 1,200 pounds, about what it would take six mules to haul. And the Weasel's a whole lot more cooperative than a mule. They called it a Weasel because it could go just about anywhere. They use them a lot here at Camp Hale in their training. It enabled them to get uh, supplies up to uh, the troops when they were out on maneuvers around the valley. Uh, they also could attach uh, tow ropes to the back of the weasel and tow the, the troops on skis down, down the, the paths. Uh, there's an amphibious kit that fits on the front here so you could use it in water and the treads would, would propel you through the water. So it was a very versatile uh, machine. Did they live up to their expectations? I think they did. Uh, they were very versatile. There obviously were certain parts of the terrain where it couldn't go, and that's when the mules came in handy. The Army had all but phased out animals, except for the 10th. They got horses and thousands of mules. Clothing and other gear was high-tech for its time. Two types of gloves, a mitten, a wool mitten on the inside that had a trigger finger built into it so that you could wear the glove and still be able to fire your weapon. But there was one thing the equipment could not protect them from. We had these trains go by, belching black smoke. Everybody started coughing. So the smoke from the, from the uh, heating the barracks along with the train smoke created this inversion. And many of us, most of us, got the Pando hack, which was the cough that came from breathing in the coal smoke. 
As our ski troops trained across the Atlantic, the German soldiers they'd eventually face were fortifying their positions in the Italian Alps. They were creating a defensive line that would frustrate numerous Allied attempts to break through it. You could not have uh, anything but great respect for them. Uh, they were a fierce warrior. Coming up, the men of the tent are put to a frigid test. Three weeks of outdoor maneuvers in harsh winter weather with blizzards and snow squalls a whole lot worse than this. That's ahead on War Stories. In June 1942, many Americans' worst fears were realized when Japan seized American soil on the islands of Attu and Kiska. These were part of Alaska's Aleutian chain. Mountainous and barren outposts in the frigid Bering Sea. In the spring of 43, FDR ordered them retaken. The 7th Division landed at the, on the island of Attu uh, and uh, took it back after a very, very bloody operation. Many American boys died in part because they weren't prepared for the cold weather and harsh mountainous terrain. The 87th Mountain Regiment was. We were given uh, the assignment to be a part uh, of the landing force uh, on the island of Kiska. It was called Amphibian Task Force 9, and it set sail from San Francisco July 29, 1943. 32,000 men strong. It was the largest army amphibious operation of the war to date. Then we went to Kiska, did an amphibious landing. On August 15th of 43. Each battalion of the 87th was to land at a different place on the island of Kiska, take the high ground, take the mountain ground, so that the regular flatland army infantry could land on the beaches below under the protection of our guns. What they did not know at the time was that the enemy had already slipped away. But plenty of American blood was shed on Kiska. Japanese booby traps killed several. A mine sank a Navy destroyer, taking with it 300 sailors. And two separate units of the 87th were involved in a harrowing, friendly firefight. The ridge that they assaulted was basically a U-shaped ridge. So that if you went to the tip of it, you were really directly in front of the unit at the other end of, of the circle. When they got up into this fog, they couldn't see who was on the other side of the U. And so a firefight developed between the two. And they began firing back and forth at one another. Thinking, well, the people on the other ridge are the enemy, but in fact they were their, their very own comrades from their, their own regiment. Eleven men died and several others were wounded. That was of a particular sadness to me because the first lieutenant killed on the island of Kiska was my army roommate. By December of 43, the 87th was back at Camp Hale. And by then, the new 85th and 86th regiments had been added. And all were about to face a challenge some remember as the most difficult of their lives. In World War II, every army division, before it could be deployed to combat, underwent a month-long series of tests, which were called the D-series. That particular five weeks turned out to be absolutely the most severe five weeks of the whole winter. Tremendous snowstorms and extreme low temperatures. 
We were high in the mountains uh, underneath Homestake Peak. It was very cold and we slept in the snow. We were told that it may have even hit 50 below it uh, on one night. Guys were stranded up on mountains. The mules couldn't get to them with rations. The equipment broke because it became so brittle. Uh, in, in one day, over 100 cases of frostbite had to be evacuated from the mountain. But we survived it. I didn't think we could, but we did survive it. And they now believed there wasn't anything they couldn't do. All of us felt that we had accomplished something that was really beyond belief. And that's when they were detailed to go to Texas for flatland training. At Camp Swift near Austin. It wasn't too long after we got there that the reason we were there was to be staged for overseas shipment. And they were about to get a new lieutenant from Kansas named Bob Dole. I got one of those 90-day commissions in Fort Benning, Georgia, Class 360, December 1944. 90 days and I'm supposed to know everything. Did you at that point know you were destined for the 10th Mountain? No, but I knew I was destined for somewhere because they were short on second lieutenants. That somewhere was the mountains of Italy, where he'd soon discover the special bond of the men he'd command. I think one of the things that made the 10th Mountain Division as great as it later became was uh, the feeling of total confidence in your, in your buddy, in your comrade, and in yourself. In the mountainous middle of Italy's boot, the Germans dig in their heels. The Allies try over and over to break through without success, and the 10th is called in to finish the job. That's ahead on War Stories. July 9, 1943, more than 180,000 Americans and British soldiers landed on the island of Sicily, beginning the drive to retake Italy. Two months later, the U.S. 5th Army landed at Salerno on the mainland. The vast Allied invasion gathers momentum with each passing day. Battle-wise, Allied fighting units destined to blast their way up the Italian booth. On June 4, 1944, nearly a year later, the Allies finally took Rome from the Germans. About three-quarters of the Italian peninsula was now in Allied hands. By late 44, the Germans had retreated north to a defensive line running east to west through the mountain range known as the Apennines. It went from sea to sea totally across Italy. They had approximately 500,000 men. The U.S. Fifth Army suffered 15,000 casualties in just six weeks trying to break through the German defenses. Basically, the war become a stalemate in the northern Apennines. The ski troops, now a full-fledged division, the 10th Mountain, would be assigned to break through the German defenses on the winter line. This was basically the, the last line of mountains and defenses before the Po Valley. So the Germans really needed to hold on to this in order to keep the Allies from just basically running like crazy uh, through the flat land of the Po Valley and, and into the Alps. They arrived in Naples, where the Italian people were surviving in desperate conditions. Well, I just remember there were as many boats upside down as there were right side up in the harbor. Many, many Italian children out there with pans trying to 
beg for food. Little boys selling their sisters in prostitution and uh, the vulgarity of the situation really hit you between the eyes. Steeled for combat, the men headed north to a staging area near Florence. They began patrolling to get a sense of what the, what the front lines were like, find out where the German positions were. Their objective, Mount Belvedere, a peak overlooking the Germans' crucial main supply route in northern Italy, Highway 64. The importance of that from a military standpoint was it controlled the highway that ran between Florence and Bologna. That high ground would be able to prevent any kind of troop movements through those valleys. But to take Belvedere, they first needed to take another series of peaks known as Riva Ridge. It rises about 3,500 feet from the valley floor. And on the side that was facing the Allies, it was almost a sheer cliff face. The Germans on the summit of Riva Ridge totally controlled uh, the approaches to Mount Belvedere. And what the officers of the 10th Mountain decided was they would do a sneak attack in the middle of the night and basically surprise the Germans. They hid in Italian homes for several days. We uh, did a lot of work in, after dark, you know, moving trucks after dark and stuff like that. Then, late on the 18th of February, 700 men from the 1st Battalion of the 86th began a daring night climb up the sheer cliffs of Riva Ridge, something the Germans never expected. We put 1,200 men, five companies of infantry, up five different climbing routes on cliff faces, uh, running between 1,500 and 2,000 feet high. And the elements reached the summit without being detected, came in behind the German positions on Riva Ridge, and it was ours in one night. The next night, just before midnight, five battalions of the 10th Mountain began their assault on Mount Belvedere and its sister peak, Mount Gorgolescu. I was assigned to be lead scout for the 3rd Battalion of the 87th and stayed with them till the top of Mount Belvedere. They'd taken the peak, but at dawn, the Germans started pounding them with artillery. Bob narrowly escaped death. I would advance by running and then diving into a shell hole. And then shells would land and I'd get up and run again. And a shell landed right next to me. If I hadn't been in a shell hole, I would have been killed instantly. Hugh Evans' courage on Mount Gorgolescu earned him the Silver Star. Hugh led the charge on the Nazi position at the peak. The enemy had engaged us. They were shelling and uh, firing machine gun fire. And I came on Bob Fisher, and he'd been riddled through the chest. He died there saying, dear God, please stop now. And that infuriated me at the time. And, and let's say uh, uh, anger probably is an important part, but a dangerous part of uh, any combat situation and drove me to go up and see where these machine guns were firing. I threw a grenade into what was a foxhole and then jumped in. There was a dead German there and there were two Germans that gave up. And I looked ahead down the next slope and someone stuck their head up and 
Somehow I hit the guy. I ran down and jumped in that trench. And there was a German machine gun pointing down, and they gave up. And then I saw Germans running down the hill, and I turned the machine gun on those Germans. Then troops now started coming over the ridge. All the soldiers came up with their hands up. Any one of those, if they'd had their head up, could have done away with me in an instant. Hugh Evans had just captured Mount Gorgolesco. During the final days of the Belvedere battle, Bob Dole was assigned to I Company, 85th Regiment of the 10th Mountain. You were assigned as a rifle platoon commander initially. Right. As a replacement for a lieutenant who'd been killed. Yeah. yeah. Most of those guys had been together ever since Camp Hale. I'm the only stranger in town here. And are they going to accept me? Are they going to say this guy doesn't know anything? But they accepted me, and, uh, you know, we had a great group of guys. In the successful capture of Reaver Ridge, Belvedere, and Gorgalescu, 203 men of the 10th Mountain were killed and 706 wounded. But there was little time to mourn their dead. For the division was ordered to push north to take more of the Italian hide ground from the German defenders. One mountain peak after another peak and valley after valley, remembering that the enemy is on the top of everything and you're at the bottom of everything. The mountain troops' victories on Riva Ridge and Mount Belvedere encouraged the Allies and sent the Germans reeling. But there are still bloody battles ahead. That's next on War Stories. With its victory at Riva Ridge and Mount Belvedere, the 10th Mountain Division had quickly established a reputation as fierce combatants. On Riva Ridge, they also demonstrated amazing engineering skills. With our troops 1,500 feet above the valley floor, how do you supply them? Our mountain engineer company was asked to put in an aerial tramway between the valley floor and the summit of Riva Ridge, and that was done in one day. And so we were able almost immediately uh, to take food and ammunition to the summit of Riva by aerial tram and evacuate the killed and the wounded and so forth, bring them down by aerial tram. Beyond Riva, supplying troops was accomplished by mule, weasel, jeep, or anything that worked. We were in charge of mules and in charge of, of supply for the division. Lieutenant Bob Nordhaus, 10th Quartermaster Battalion, was born in 1909, less than a year after Henry Ford's first Model T's rolled off his production line. A lot of our 10th Quartermaster were also combat infantrymen when they weren't doing the quartermaster work. All through March and early April, they advanced inch by inch, pushing the enemy back. And suffered, of course, the casualties that went with that. The local Italians cheered them on. So did American girls from the Red Cross. They were handing out donuts there as we went by a few hundred yards from where the, the front line had been only that earlier that morning. I thought, this is crazy. They should not be here. Among the advancing soldiers were two members of the famous Trap family singers, Rupert and Werner. With their stepmother Maria, they'd one day be immortalized in the Broadway musical and movie, The Sound of Music. Bob Mayerhoff and Rupert were friends. He was on the same 1st uh, Battalion medics that I was. 
Werner spoke fluent German. He was an infantry. And he saved countless lives on March 5th when he was able to eavesdrop on the German 29th Panzer Grenadiers, planning an assault, and relay that information to his commanders. Another famous European world champion ski jumper, Torger Tokel, from Norway, wasn't so lucky. I saw his body, in fact, on a hill where he'd been shot and killed. It put a shock through the division. They, they just could not believe that Torger could be killed. I mean, he was their hero. By early April, American and British commanders had prepared a major offensive they hoped would deliver the decisive blow to the Germans in Italy. As part of Operation Craftsman, Lieutenant Bob Dole and his men were to drive the Germans from the mountains and seize the Po River Valley below. And Bob Dole was given the task of taking out the enemy machine gun that was up the hill from him. I went out to get my radio man, who was hit, Corporal Sims. Trying to drag him back into a foxhole because he had been hit first. And about the time I got to him or got sort of back in the foxhole, I felt this sting in my right shoulder. But uh, my member, Sergeant Kuschuk, I think it was, put AM on my head, my blood, morphine, to give me morphine. It was about nine hours from the time you were. I think so, it was a long time. And I remember going down the, the hill on the litter because I just vaguely remember the sharp pain in my back. Lieutenant Dole wasn't expected to live, but he'd proved the doctors wrong, though he'd never regained the full use of his right arm. The April 14th offensive had broken through the last line of German mountain defenses, but the cost was enormous. 553 men of the 10th Mountain Division were killed or wounded that one day alone. Now it was a race to the Po River, with the Germans in full retreat. We were the first battalion and unit of any kind of those two armies to actually physically cross the Great Po. They crossed under heavy fire in amphibious vehicles known as ducks and even small rowboats. And pretty soon everyone was paddling, you know, stroke, stroke. It was a riot. And with German 88s exploding overhead, but we got across in pretty good order and with relatively few casualties. Next, it was on to Lake Garda with the towering Alps not far beyond. They took Mussolini's villa. But the much-feared dictator had already been captured by the Italian resistance. And they had taken him to Milan and killed him in Milan. Along with his mistress and other fascist leaders, their bodies were put on public display. Two days later, Adolf Hitler committed suicide in his bunker in Berlin. And then on May 2nd, the Germans in Italy decided, you know, they had enough. And the commander of the German forces in Italy decided that he would surrender. But General Friedolin von Senger refused to give up to anyone other than General Hayes, the commander of the men who'd beaten him. Among the troops, the reaction was anything but celebration. It was one of uh, miraculous relief. The war is over and I'm alive. The war ends, but the accomplishments of the 10th continue. Bob Parker co-founds Vale, and Bob Nordhaus builds the longest tramway in the world. We'll take a ride when War Stories continues.
After the war, some of the ski troops continued their love affair with the mountains. Many of them were very instrumental in the growth of the American skiing industry afterwards. They founded or managed more than 60 ski areas in the United States. Bob Parker started Skiing Magazine, then, with other men of the 10th, founded Vail, one of the most successful ski areas in the world. Many of the men of the 10th Mountain Division who were in the world of skiing after the war felt that Bob was the marketing genius that really uh, sold and created the success of the great ski area at Vail. Bob Nordhaus became a legend in two fields. As an attorney, he became one of the nation's leading defenders of Indian rights, even arguing cases before the Supreme Court. It's a sort of a scary thing to, to go before that court, but uh, we prevailed, that's the main thing. And he became known as the father of skiing in his state. He is skiing in New Mexico. Bob Nordhaus started it all, got two ski areas started, built the tramway. Boy, this is impressive. And Bob took Earl Clark, Bob Parker, and war stories for a ride on the tram he built, the world's longest. I got the idea in 1955 when I first went to, uh, to Europe to ski. It runs 2.7 miles, rising to an altitude of over 10,000 feet, from Albuquerque to the summit of his ski area, Sandia Peak. It's carried about 8 million people from all over the world. Bob Dole became the majority leader of the United States Senate and a candidate for president. But in 1945, he was just another GI struggling to recover from horrendous injuries. Four years in rehabilitation. Yeah. It's a long time. Long time. Bob Dole came from modest means, but his hometown pitched in to get him the best medical care possible. Their donations filled a cigar box that he still keeps. Senator, tell me about this cigar box. They had the idea that we'll raise enough money to get this guy to see a good bone guy. But we raised about $1,800, I recall, and uh, that paid my hospital bill. Do you ever have any moments when you just said, this is just... <laughs> I think so. I think, I've think i tried to think of some of those. Because uh, I couldn't use my left arm. It took me about 11 months to get on my feet again. But then you look around and see somebody who's really sick. You think you're pretty sick. And you see somebody carting somebody out in the bed next to you. You say, well, I'm here. The men of the original tent fought with these weasels. The men of the new tent are fighting the war on terror in Afghanistan. That's ahead on War Stories. The 10th was deactivated in 1945, but brought back in 1985. No longer ski troops, it's now called the 10th Mountain Division, Light Infantry. Soldiers of the 10th have fought in the Gulf War, played a big role in Operation Restore Hope in Somalia, helped restore democracy in Haiti, and were peacekeeping troops in Bosnia. And then they were sent to Afghanistan to take on terrorists who had attacked America on September 11th, 2001. The 10th Mountain Division patch stands for the skill, and it stands for the power of our military, and it stands for the best values of the United States of America. You have the nation's gratitude for all you've done. Mm -hmm. 
They love reunions. I mean, you mentioned a reunion. They said, when? You know, where do we go? Just recently, I was in Dallas, Texas, and met with about 16 of these guys. Many of the men of the tent still ski and see each other often, but Earl Clark hadn't seen Bob Nordhaus in 20 years until we brought them together at Bob's Tram in Albuquerque. We're here. We're fine. We're here. We're still around. <laughs> I remind people, where would you be today had these guys not prevailed in World War II? What language you speak? Could you get up and criticize your government? You can't live in the past, but you have to think about the past sometime to move ahead in the future. When you look back 50 years, it's about liberty, freedom, and being there when you're called by your country, and sometimes paying a high price for it. Oh, I trusted one, and now look at me. I had a son in the mountain. Members of the 10th deny that they're great men. There's no denying they did great things before, during, and after the war. The names of nearly a thousand of them carved into their stone memorial right here at the base of Cooper Mountain is ample evidence of that. Most of them lost their lives thousands of miles from here on battlegrounds in Italy. But they were men of the mountains. And this is where their spirit resides, right here high in these Colorado Rockies. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North. Good night.